Welcome to the Women of TBC podcast. You'll hear content from women's Bible studies and other women's events. For more information, visit templebiblechurch.org. Well, last, last weekend, my husband and I went on a camping trip to Possum Kingdom State Park. And this is a picture that Raymond took of me uh, from our tent. I'm sitting down there, if you can tell, um, by the campfire. And this was such a perfect spot because I was able to stare at two of my favorite things on earth at the same time, fire and water. So I just love the warmth of a fire on a really cold night. But when it's contained like this one in a fire pit, I love to just get lost in looking at it. I, my, I just get lost in thought. I get mesmerized by the glow of a fire. But the truth is, that fire is really dangerous. And there were signs all over Possum Kingdom that said, do not build a fire anywhere but in these designated fire pits. Because we all know that a, a flippant campfire can turn into a forest fire in no time at all. Well, we have seen fire throughout the books of Kings represent God's presence. We've seen the power of that holy fire just come down and consume sacrifices or take Elijah up to heaven or surround Elisha and his servant as chariots of fire in amazing ways. Even fire was used to defeat armies. But today I want us to look at a different aspect of the fire of God. Today, let's examine how it represents God's jealousy and his judgment. So you remember back in Deuteronomy, chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, when God was setting the law for his people, all, all those years ago, he said these words, Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you, and here's the phrase, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. So God set this precedent even more when he gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai in a very terrifying way. Moses comes down with those tablets, and this is what he tells the people in Exodus 32, verse 12, starting in verse 12. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram. And then verse 14 that you see here on the screen. For you shall worship no other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. This Hebrew name, Jealous, that we see here in the, in the Old Testament is only used five times, and it's only of God alone. Did you know that God is really the very first avenger? Because this name, jealous, it literally means severe avenger of departure from himself. So in other words, not bearing any rival. This is a, a name only reserved for God. God carefully protects what is rightfully his, and he will not share our affection or our devotion with another. This is divine jealousy. It's not sinful jealousy. It's motivated by love 
and a right of ownership. So Judah, as a part of Israel, they are a people for God's own possession. They were set apart as a light to the nations. He owns them. He lovingly owns them. And 2 Kings 18 to 25 that we have just studied is detailing 135 years of their history after the destruction of their brothers in the north that we studied last week. So we're talking about Judah. God still resides in Judah here in his temple in Jerusalem, the capital of Judah. And he longs for his people to wholeheartedly worship him there. He loves them too much to share their heart with the gods around them. And so let's see together what God's jealous fire consumes today as we wrap up these books. It's this same fire of judgment that God is going to take upon himself for us on the cross. So we want to look at how this text points us to Jesus. And so we're going to use this simple outline today. Judah disobeyed, but Jesus obeyed. Judah was exiled, and Jesus was exiled. And then how should we live now as exiles? So we're going to start with this first one. Judah was disobedient. This started all the way back with Rehoboam. Remember him all those weeks ago. Solomon's son, when he was king, he got Judah off to a really bad start. These are the words, 1 Kings 14, 22 to 24, when Rehoboam was in charge. This is what they started, how they started off. And Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins that they committed, more than all that their fathers had done. For they also built for themselves high places and pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there was also male cult prostitutes in the land. So from this point on, back from Rehoboam to where we are now, Judah has had this blatant disregard for the temple, the place where God put his name, where his presence dwelt. If you remember in 2 Kings 21, when the author is describing Manasseh, and we're going to talk about him in a minute, his wicked abominations that he did, um, the author points us back to something that David, uh, that God had said to David and Solomon about his temple. These were the words that he quoted, where God said, In this house, my temple, And in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander anymore out of the land that I gave to their fathers. If only they will be careful to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen. Isn't that a great phrase to describe describe Judah as we've studied them? over the course of this semester. I think that sums up really all of Israel and all of Judah. They didn't listen no matter who was in charge. And even though Judah had 20 different kings, all of them struggled with the high places. Instead of revering the temple, the high places represented these places of compromise, places where they would um, sacrifice and worship idols. But these high places also represented compromise on so many other levels. 
all of the kings would compromise the law of Moses in wicked and perverse ways. And it's all represented to me by the high places. Even the kings who were described as doing right in the eyes of the Lord would fail in removing these high places. So when I read stories like this, like we've read this week, I really am so tempted to try to categorize all the kings, to try to make sense of all of these wicked things that I'm reading about. And so in my mind, I kind of create a scale, a good and a bad scale, kind of like this one. It's all works-based because I want to make sense of all this awfulness, right? I don't know if you're like me, but that's how I start. I started this week, and I'm, I'm looking at the first king, and I'm excited because we start with Hezekiah, and I think, oh, good, we finally have a good one. This is going to just tip the scale to the good side. So let's read what um, the text said about Hezekiah. Just open up your Bible, 2 Kings 18, 3 through 8. It says, And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. That's really high praise, isn't it? And we saw him do so many wonderful things. He restored the temple. When, when the king of Assyria was mocking God, he prayed boldly. He prayed even for his life, and God answered his prayer and gave him 15 years. But, you know, in those last 15 years, things just didn't go very well for him. He was, he was seduced into flattery by the king of Babylon. He started to take on a lot of pride. And just in case you're like me and you think that Hezekiah is tipping this scale to the good side, his son Manasseh was conceived in those 15 years. And Manasseh would take the throne at 12 years old when his father died. That means he was conceived in those 15 years. And we know that Manasseh was more wicked than all the kings before him, the most wicked king to reign in Judah. And he reigns 55 years. 55 of those 135 years we read about this week were under this guy. And he was awful. His kingship was marked by perversion and idolatry in the worst ways. Let's look at 2 Kings 21, 2 to 7. And he, Manasseh, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the people of Israel. He rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. And he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. And he worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering and used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of Asherah that he made, he set in the house. 
in the temple. So this dude was awful and wicked, and so I look at the scale and I think, oh no, he's tipped it even farther on the bad side. And then his son, Amon, comes along, and in two short years it says he did everything that his father did. He was evil, he served the same idols, he abandoned the Lord, and he was assassinated. And then I think, oh good, but, the, but his son, Manasseh's grandson, he's gonna fix it all. Didn't you think that maybe? When you start to read about Josiah, you say, great, he's gonna, he's gonna tip this scale back on the good side. Hopefully he's going to do so much good, it's going to tip it. And so we read these amazing things that he did in chapters 22 and 23. I hope you talked about this in your groups, but remember when Hilkiah found the book of the law in the temple, Josiah was so excited. He said, let's read it to everyone. And they did, and he said, we're going to follow this. We're going to do this together. And with great passion, he removed all of these idols to the Baals and to Asherah. He removed the high places. He tore down the houses of the male cult prostitutes. And he restored the Passover. Anybody else just surprised that the Passover hadn't been practiced since the time of the judges? He restores it. He even puts away all of those mediums and necromancers from the land. This is wonderful, amazing stuff. And I look at the scale and I think, oh good, his, his goodness is going to be enough to assuage God's consequences, to assuage God's jealous fire. But the text just says, you know, the complete opposite of that. Look at 2 Kings 23, 26, and 27. Still the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. I will remove Judah also out of my sight as I have removed Israel and I will cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. You see, God just doesn't work on this kind of scale. All of these kings, in fact, all of the people of Israel and Judah had a heart problem. Jeremiah, one of the prophets to Judah, he said this to them in, Je in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it their hearts were made to worship but they consistently worshiped the god of self as evidenced by all the other gods who thought that they thought could give them what they wanted so you had a, a group of brothers three guys jehoahaz jehoiakim and zedekiah all of these brothers they couldn't legislate these wicked hearts at their leading, the people continued to dwell in sin, to do evil in the sight of the Lord. This scale just really wouldn't work. God's story points us to another scale, to the way of grace. So we had this story about Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim's son, who just reigned over Israel or over Judah for three short months. But in that time, he gives himself up to the king of Babylon and he gets put in prison. And so Jehoiak Jehoiakim, not a good guy. He's a joker, in fact. He did nothing of value. And yet this is the guy that points us most clearly to God's grace. Because we read the end of 25, chapter 25, 37 years after he was taken into exile, by God's grace, 
Jehoiakim was elevated to a favored status by the king, released from prison and given a seat at the king's table as long as he lived. So through Jehoiakim, David's lineage would persist. You can see this on your chart if you look at that chart of the kings. Jehoiakim is in the line of David, and so David's line persists. Revelation 5 says that there would be a lion from the tribe of Judah. From Judah's line would come a lion who would conquer sin and death once and for all. And so the lineage of Jehoiakim extends directly to Jesus Christ. Because you see, while Judah disobeyed, Jesus obeyed. He obeyed perfectly. I love this passage in Philippians 2, verse 8. Speaking of Jesus, Paul says, Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This obedient Jesus was willing to take the consequences for all of Israel's disobedience, for all of Judah's disobedience, and for all of our disobedience. He takes that consequence upon himself. So what was the consequence? What was the, what was the consequence that their sin deserved? Well, just like Israel last week, Judah was exiled or expelled from their homeland. We read in 2 Kings chapter 24, this is when Jehoiakim, like I said earlier, was only three months into his reign. Nebuchadnezzar comes in and starts to do some damage. Let's read here verses 10. Just these are segments of verses 10 to 15. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem and the city was besieged. The king of Babylon carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, and all the craftsmen and all the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. So this was kind of the first part of this um, exile. This is probably when Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego left and went to Babylon, but he didn't take everybody. He left quite a few people, and this is when he made Zedekiah, Jehoiakim's uncle, king, and he got to reign for a few more years here in Judah. But then we read in chapter 25, 2 Kings, um, Nebuchadnezzar sends the captain of his army back, starting in verse 8. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, and he burned the house of the Lord, that great temple that Solomon had built that we studied. He burned it down. He burned down the king's house and all of the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. And then to verse 11, and the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon, together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuzarad and the captain of the guard carried into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. So now this is complete. Jerusalem has been besieged, the temple destroyed, the fire of the Lord has consumed that great house that Solomon built. 
And this captivity for these people in Babylon would last for 70 years, and it would be a great test for Judah. But God assured them through prophets like Isaiah, I hope you talked about Isaiah in your groups, Isaiah intersects Judah right at this time, and then Jeremiah. Um, Jeremiah is somebody who they think might have written the books of Kings. He intersects the people at this time, and Jeremiah's words are to this people of Judah right as they're about to go into 70 long years of exile. So I want to um, remind you of what Jeremiah told them. He pleaded with them not to squander this time. This time would be useful. If you want to turn with me, it's in Jeremiah 29. I want to start with verse 7. This is what Jeremiah is saying to them. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And then down in verse 10, For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. And then in the very next verse, words that I know that all of you have heard, but maybe you haven't thought about them being at this time in Israel's history, right before they're about to go into 70 years, Jeremiah says this to them. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come to me and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places that I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So this time of captivity was supposed to teach Israel how to wait well. This is a skill that they would need as they waited for the Messiah to come, when God would pour out his spirit on his people. But many of them would squander this time of exile. They would assimilate into Babylonian culture, like in the days of Esther, renouncing their faith amongst great danger and persecution. But good thing Jesus didn't squander his exile. He was exiled so that all of us, all the Gentiles and the Jews who believed in his name, could come into the kingdom of God. Isaiah pointed this out to the people, this people, again, right before they went into exile. In Isaiah 53, verses 7 to 8, he tells them about this coming Messiah. He says, He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. So Jesus was exiled from heaven, his home, to earth, to put on flesh, to face every temptation that we face and not be overcome by it. And then to take the wrath, the punishment, the judgment upon himself that all of that sin deserved 
so that we could now find our home in him. So as Christ's remaining body here on this earth, we live as exiles. Philippians 3, 19 and 20. Uh, in it, Paul reminds us of this truth. Our citizenship is now in heaven. And, we, and from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So as exiles, I want us to ask ourselves, how should we live? And I think these chapters give us some really good ideas of how we could live as exiles here. Like Hezekiah, we are to trust God and to pray fervently in trying times. I love Hezekiah's prayer. I hope you talked about it at your tables, but I love his prayer in chapter 19, 15 to 16, and then verse 19. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O oh Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. O Lord, our God, save us, please. From his hand, you can, you can substitute there anything that, you, that is causing you fear or angst or anxiety. O Lord, save us from that, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. What a great prayer for us to pray right now in our cultural context, so relevant. But then also like Josiah, we are to uphold the word. And I am excited that you're here because you wanna do that. We are to gather around the word and read it aloud and listen to it and talk about it and let it transform us and move us and shape us. And then like Josiah, we are to put away sin. We're to put it aside, cast it aside, have nothing to do with it, encourage each other to do that. And then we are to remember with gratitude what God has done for us and is continuing to do through us. Josiah reinstituted the Passover. That Passover was supposed to be this really important ceremonial remembrance for Israel to help them remember that God had delivered them from slavery all those years ago from Egypt. Every time they took it, they were to remember his presence and his power. And Jesus took that Passover and he reinstituted it for us as his believers, as his followers, as his disciples, so that every time we take it, we remember what Jesus has secured for us on the cross. And that's why every semester at the end of our time together, I think it's so important that we commune around that table. And remember that everything we ever study in God's word is pointing us to Jesus and to what he's done for us on the cross. So I want to just take one more moment to invite you back next week for that time of communion. So as we conclude, I want to go back to my campfire last weekend. As I sat by that fire, I was thinking about how often I worship God on my own terms confined to a fire pit that I can control. And even though God's fire may be more than I can contain, I want the Holy Spirit to take complete control of my heart, to lead me beyond myself, to help me 
smash and burn up all those idols that I cling so tightly to. I long for this worship to consume my entire life, no matter what I'm saying or doing or where I find myself. But you know what, guys? I can't do this alone. And you cannot do this alone. Just like Judah, we are a people set apart for God's glory. Peter reminds us of this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, when he says, you are a people for God's own possession. That means God owns us, and he is jealous for us as his singular bride, his church. We belong to him. He loves us so deeply. He desires our wholehearted devotion and affection, and he does not want to share it with anyone or anything else. So I want to encourage us to surrender together to the all-consuming, jealous fire of God's presence. The Hebrew writer says it this way in Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire.